Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, good evening. Thank you so much for coming out. And thank you for that response. (laughs) That was a dramatic pause that was not planned, but it worked out fantastically. So I'm glad that just happened. All right, so I would like to speak tonight on a lovely topic called shame. Before we get into that, I'd like to differentiate between shame and embarrassment. Uh, You ever done something stupid? This would be an audience participation part, raise your hand or something. Have you ever done something stupid? Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Have you ever then been embarrassed by said stupid thing and then like, you know, years later, like on the drive here, you're just driving and all of a sudden, for some reason, a road sign brings back the stupid thing and you do that, yeah, as you try to get rid of it. If I'm the only one who twitches while driving because of embarrassing moments, you should try it sometime. It freaks out the driver in the next lane, if nothing else. But uh, let me give you an example of um, what, what might be embarrassing. So say you're like, you know, 15, and um, you're on a kind of sort of date. That's when you're with a girl, if you're a guy. And you're with a girl, and you kind of like her, and she kind of likes you, but you're, you haven't decided if this is a date yet. And so you're like, I should be smooth. So you look at her, and you say, you know, you have, you have, you have beautiful eyes. And she goes, aw. And so then you're like, next level, next level. So you're like, they're just a really pretty blue. And then it freezes and there's a disturbance in the force. And then you remember, her eyes are green. Her sister has the pretty blue eyes. And she knows, and it's now a, not a date, it's, you're just friends, it's not a, and I'm not saying that that happened, but if it did, that would still be, you know, embarrassing that you got like three colors to choose from and you got that one wrong, like, and, and she was right there, you could have looked. Uh, and then, you know, a, another example would be, um, so, you do some public speaking, and early in high school, they realize, hey, we could put this guy on stage, and usually it won't crash and burn. So if we need somebody to open like a dramatic production um, on the life of John Newton, who was the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, who happened to be a captain of a slave ship before he got saved, um, you know, we should give TJ the opening line. Like, we'll have the first song by John Newton, and then he'll come walking out, and this is what it's supposed to look like. He's going to come out confidently right to center stage, and he's going to say the dramatic... Oh, wait. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Um, the dramatic conversion of John Newton can be compared to that of the Apostle Paul, and he's going to keep rolling, and it's going to be great. So what would be embarrassing is if uh, you didn't completely forget the lines, because when you forget lines, you can either just not say anything, and everyone goes, oh, he forgot. Um, or... Uh, you can just make something up that was close to what you were supposed to say. But he didn't quite remember, and so instead, song finishes and TJ comes walking out and goes, the dramatic conversion of John Newton can be compared to that, and it comes one word at a time with terrible pauses. And people are sitting there going like, is he stroking? Is he okay? Oh, this is really bad. And... So that, yeah. Have you ever done something stupid and been embarrassed? Have you ever done something wrong, sinful, and been ashamed? I'm not going to give you an example because that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's funny to stand up here and tell stupid stories that are embarrassing. It's not cool to uh, remember stuff you did that you had no business doing and seeing where that lands us. So, I want to talk about shame. I don't want to talk about embarrassment. I want to talk about shame. 
let me give you a couple of uh, definitions so we can kind of get all on the same page. So guilt is having committed an offense, crime, or violation against moral or penal law. Shame is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable or improper done by oneself or another. So guilt is doing something wrong, shame is feeling it. For tonight, here's my working defi definition for all of us to get on the same page. Shame is guilt experienced. Shame is guilt experienced. You know you're guilty and you feel the shame. The guilt is the fact, the shame is the feeling. So, shame is guilt experience. Shame is the present identity of a past reality. According to psychology today, shame generates a wish to hide, to disappear, or even to die. One French philosopher said, or he called shame, a hemorrhaging of the soul. It's when it gets you so deep that your very being seems to be leaking out of you at an uncontrollable rate. And when you think of that thing that you did or that was done to you, it's like part of you just starts to leak out and you cannot stop it. And you become less and less and less of a person as your worth and your value seeps out. That is shame. You are guilty because of what you have done. You are ashamed because of who you are. And that's where we find ourselves tonight, tackling this topic that probably every one of us are facing at some level or will face. And what do we do? Yes, we know we were guilty, but what do we do now that we, not the thing we did, we have shame. We are ashamed of who we are. Newton gave us several laws. One was the law of motion. An object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. I don't know if you're aware of this, shame follows the law of motion. A person in shame will stay in shame unless acted upon by an outside force. If you are in shame right now, if you are ashamed, you will stay in shame unless acted upon by an outside force. So I have given this title, or this uh, talk tonight, the title, The Lies of Shame Versus the Truths of the Cross. So let's look quickly at the lies of shame. And I think if you are here tonight and you're experiencing shame, you're living in that reality of I'm guilty, therefore I am ashamed. I feel ashamed. I feel worthless. I think we could probably break everybody down into one of three categories, why you would be feeling shame. The first group here tonight is feeling shame because of something that was done to you. The second group is feeling shame or is ashamed because of how you are currently living. And the third group is feeling shame because of something you've done in the past. So something that was done to you, something you are currently doing, or something you have done in the past that is still messing with you. So what does this look like? What are the kind of facts behind this? So let's talk to that first group. Uh, this one's tough, okay? Because your shame is real. Your feelings of worthlessness are real but your guilt is not necessary. You had something done to you, you were assaulted, you were wronged, you were sinned against, and I, I, it terrifies me to think about in an audience this size, how many victims of assault and rape and different 
horrible crimes that were never intended to happen on God's green earth, but yet have happened to you, and you're the one left feeling guilty. Because you can have guilt without shame, but you cannot have shame without guilt. What we need to decide is if that guilt is yours to bear. Because if you were the victim of assault, your shame is real. I don't want to take it away from you at all or say, well, just get over it. Because you can't. But you are not guilty. You were wronged. What happened to you was wrong, and I'm sorry it happened. This is possibly the darkest form of the shame we're going to talk about because it's ever-present, it's very real, and you didn't earn it. Somebody thrust it upon you, and now you're stuck carrying its weight. The good news is, I do believe there is help and hope for you. And we will get to that in a minute. Second group, you are ashamed because of how you're currently living. If you are familiar with the Bible at all, then you have read or had a sermon from Luke 15, where Jesus tells his famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. In that story, there's a man, Middle Eastern man, so the whole culture is about shame and honor. Stay away from that which is shameful, do that which is honorable. And he has two sons, an older and a younger. The younger son is the most shameful, worst sinner Jesus ever made up in all his stories. He asks his father basically to die. He says, I want my part of the money now, so basically can you die? He takes it, he goes off into Gentile territory, he blows it on riotous living, which his brother later tells us was spent on partying and prostitutes, and he blows it all, then he becomes a pig farmer. We've got a Jewish boy farming pigs. He's living with the pigs, and when it gets at the absolute bottom, he comes crawling back to his dad because he realizes, man, I blew it. Everything about my life right now is not just wrong, it is an assault on the honor of my father. And not just my father, my whole community. I am a shameful person bringing shame on everybody around me. This was how he experienced. And so if this represents you at all, if you are living contrary to God's plan, you may not already be experiencing the, the consequences of that, but you will because God is the author and designer of this life and he set it up to run a certain way. If you use your car in a way that is not intended to, you have an owner's manual in your glove compartment under ketchup packets for a reason. And not for the ketchup packets, for the owner's manual so that Honda can tell you, yeah, you weren't supposed to do that. Don't be surprised if you don't change the oil if the motor blows up, which happened to a friend. It's rather fascinating because it wasn't my car. And... God has set up this world to run a certain way and your life to run a certain way. If you ignore it, don't be surprised if that comes with consequences. You're guilty. You're sinning. You are casting shame on a holy, righteous God with unrighteousness and sin. Your shame is real. It's justified, just like the first group, but the difference is yours is appropriate. Yours is necessary because you're guilty. The good news is there is hope and help for you, which we'll get to in just a minute. Third group, which I, if I had to wager a bet, I would say is the bulk of the people I'm talking to tonight. I mean, you're here on a Sunday night doing extended worship, sitting on the floor. I mean, if that doesn't say you're spiritual, I don't know what does. So you have come to God through Christ, and yet you have done some stupid stuff in the past. And by stupid, I don't mean you called a girl's eyes the wrong color. I mean you sinned against another person and against God. And now you are guilty. You feel unusable by God. Sure, you've repented, 
You've come to God and said, I'm sorry, but you know what you did and you know how holy and righteous God is and those two, what you did and who he is cannot coexist. And the shame just stays there and you hide from other people and you, you'll tell an embarrassing story, you won't tell a shameful story because they can't know that that's really me. Your shame is justified. It's real. Now we need to discuss if it is really supposed to be there. You know God can save you, but can he actually redeem you? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. So now that we've all feel like garbage and worthless, hey, let's move to the good part of the sermon. Uh, let's move to, if those were the lies of shame, let's move to the truths of the cross. Once again, I remind you that an object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. A person in shame stays in shame unless acted upon by an outside force. Let me take you all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject God, eating of the fruit of the tree, and in so doing, they sin. And it says in Genesis 3 that after they sinned, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And if you keep reading, the next thing that happens is we have our very first sacrifice. An animal is killed. For what purpose? God takes the, clo- or the skin of that animal and he uses it to clothe them, to cover their shame. The very first sacrifice in the Bible was about shame. Do you think God cares about you and redeeming your shame and bringing you back to a useful state? Absolutely. All the way back in Genesis 3 and all the way through Scripture, God is that outside source, outside force, acting upon our shame. Because a person in shame will stay in shame unless God, the outside force, acts upon him. So let's talk to that first group. The group who is here who feels ashamed because of what was done to them. The most powerful sermon a person can ever preach is two words. I know. A very similar sermon would also be, I understand. When you can look at somebody and you have gone through the same thing they're going through and you can honestly look them in the eye and say, I know. Man, your ministry to that person is limitless. If I go to a cancer person, a cancer patient, and I say, man, I know. No, I don't. I haven't had cancer. But if I have, and I look at them and I say, I know what you're going through. The connection and the potential ministry is huge. What does that have to do with anything? If you are here and you are feeling shame because of something that was done to you, I want to be the person to stand in front of you and say, Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be wronged, to be sinned against. He was innocent in every way, and yet he was murdered by his own country. If somebody has wronged you, Jesus Christ is longing to look you in the eye and say, I know, I understand, and he does. Let me give you a couple of more quick definitions to help you wrap your head around what's going on here. Assault is one-way violence. Grace is one-way love. Assault is when somebody goes after you with one-way violence, and grace is when someone else goes after you with one-way love. If you are here today and you have been assaulted or wronged in some way and you are experiencing shame, your healing will start to come when you replace your identity, 
You take the identity of the one-way violence of assault and you replace it with the one-way love of grace in Jesus Christ. That is when you will begin to see healing and change. Remember, no matter what was done to you and how bad it left you feeling, you are made in the very image of God. Going all the way back to Genesis 1.26, you're made in the very image of God. And what that means is you have unmeasurable, unbelievable, and unremovable value and worth. No matter what somebody else has done to you, your innocence was not taken. It is still there because you are made in the image of God. I want to remind you of the story of uh, Mark 5 when Jesus meets the woman with the issue of blood. Remember that one? She works her way through the crowd and grabs the hem of his garment and she's healed. This is a woman who through no fault of her own, this should sound like you if you're in group one, who through no fault of her own was now a social and religious reject and outcast on the outside looking in, forced to stay away from everybody and live in the shame of God does not love you. How could he love you? Look at what he let happen to you. You're dirty, you're worthless. And then God himself in Jesus Christ comes and what does he do? He draws her close. He's the only one who will touch her. He, he praises her faith. He heals her. And he releases her into a new identity of peace and freedom found through Jesus Christ. If you are here in group one, Jesus knows he understands. And he will treat you as he treated the woman with the issue of blood. What about group two? What are the truths of the cross for the second group? Well, let's go back to the prodigal son. After all this that he has done, after everything shameful that he has done, he comes crawling back to his dad. He has brought shame on the entire village, so he's expecting the village to now cast shame on him. Let's actually read verses 20 to 24 of Luke 15. They say this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Interesting. The dad was looking for him. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This son came crawling back expecting two things. Number one, he brought shame on the city. The whole city is going to put shame on him. And number two, he was going to have to work everything off before he was ever considered, even considered, to be part of the family again. He had prepared a speech. Father, I'm no longer worthy to become your son. Be called your son. Make me as one of your slaves. He doesn't get that far. He was expecting restitution before reconciliation. And what happened? Oh, there's such a cool picture here. The father sees him. He runs to him. By running, a Middle Eastern man to run would have to lift his robe so as not to trip and expose his leg. That's the point to the robe. The leg is shameful. You have to protect that. You have to cover it. The father shows the leg and runs. He brings shame on himself. He goes outside the city. Before the shame of the city can get to that sinner, he goes out there to get to him first. And then he embraces him. And he kisses him. And he hugs him. And he touches a pig-contaminated son. 
what is going on here? This, which Jesus reminds us, the Father is a picture of God. This is how God responds to a sinner. He welcomes him back and gives him full sonship. He gives him a robe. It would have been the robe that was saved for the oldest son's wedding. This isn't just a clothing. This is like the tux. He puts a ring on his finger, and that would have been the signet ring. You can now do family business. This guy just went and blew a third of the estate, and dad hands him another family credit card. What? Puts shoes on his feet. Slaves were barefoot. Sons wore shoes. Puts shoes on his feet. Kills the fatted calf and throws a party. Why? Because the son realized what he was doing and he repented. He changed his ways and came back. And this is how he is greeted. This, if you are here living a shameful life, this is your call. Come to the Father. This is how he greets sinners. He comes to you before the shame does. And he's not the only one. Look at what Hebrews 13, 12 says. And, also, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus, the Calvary, Golgotha, the mountain where he was killed, it was outside the city. Jesus takes our shame outside the city. The Father runs to the Son outside the city. Before the shame of those around you can come to you, God comes and he fixes it. So does Jesus. And then we get to the third group, the group that I think is most of us. The group that we are, yes, we've come to God through Christ. We've come to salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But we've done some pretty stupid stuff in the past and we, we should have known better and we are ashamed. Well, to you, I want to remind you of the story of Saul. Saul was a man who lived in the first century. He was very religious. He actually climbed the ladder of Judaism uh, faster than anybody else his age. He was becoming a leader in it. He was, and then there was this new upstart religion that was threatening Judaism. It was called Christianity. So Paul became, or so, I'm sorry, Saul became a leader in persecuting that religion, in persecuting Christianity, so much so that he was actually putting Christians in jail and even killing some. And then through a crazy series of events that in, involved super bright lights and temporary blindness for three days and voices from heaven and a name change and all sorts of stuff, Saul becomes Paul. He meets God. He changes sides. And he goes to the Christian side and is then himself persecuted by his former buddies in Judaism. And yet, I ask you, I mean, I've done some stuff, you've done some stuff, we all have a past. If anybody should have been buried in shame and felt there's no way God can use me, sure, save me, yeah, save me from my past, yeah, use me in spite of my past, no, no it would have been Saul who's now Paul. If anybody should have just stayed out of public ministry because if you really knew what I had done, you wouldn't want to be around me. I mean, how do you go from, how do you just walk away from killing people for the wrong cause, switch sides and be like, oh yeah, sorry about that, but I'm on your side now. Like, it doesn't work like that. And yet that's what he's trying to do. And yet Saul becomes the apostle Paul who wrote one-third of the New Testament, who went on three massive missionary journeys, who took the gospel to the Gentiles, which, newsflash, that's why we're sitting here 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, a bunch of Gentiles gathered around, and he started at least 14 churches. Saul, the Christian murderer, did this. How? How did he overcome his past? Well, let me read to you a few verses from 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. 
I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. How did Paul get over his past? He was honest about it. I mean, look at that. He just said, I was a blasphemer and I was violent and all this stuff. He was honest about it, but he stopped focusing on his past and he started focusing on his new identity in Christ. And then he also talks about this in Galatians 1, in verses 13 to 16, where he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human beings. But when God, remember, a person in shame will stay in shame unless acted upon by an outside force. And thanks be to God, in the gospel message, you and I, every person in this room, we have a verse 15 moment. We have a but when God. He has acted upon your shame and it is now changed. And how do we get over the shame of our past? The same way Paul did. We stop looking at our past. We're honest about it. But we look to our future, our identity in Christ. And not because of who we are, but because of the one who has destined us and called us to it. That is how we get over it. That is how we move from shame into usefulness before God. So, so let's get practical for a minute. What does that look like? How do we, what is this, like, this is good, but what's the practical steps? How do we make this work? I want you to notice something. In your life, you naturally create distance from anything or anyone that embarrasses you or of which you are ashamed. You naturally put distance away from that, that which is embarrassing you or of which you are ashamed. Then we see Jesus and his life in the Gospels. And he creates distance from those who consider themselves religiously and righteously elite and who are not ashamed of, his, of their sin. But instead, he gets close to those who know they're broken, to those who know they've messed up, to those who know they have shame. I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed to remove your shame, just like back in Genesis 3. Here's an interesting thought. It is very possible that the thing that you think is creating distance between you and God, the thing you are ashamed of, is the very thing that is actually bringing you very close to God. What if we were to stop letting the weight of our shame push us away from God and actually brought us back and pushed us into the loving arms of Jesus Christ? Where would that put us? What would this church look like if we stopped focusing on our past? We were honest about it, but instead we looked to the future and the one who called us to it, and we let our shame push us into that. Shame enslaves us. It makes us captive. So does sin. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ paid every and all ransom. So what do we do? We battle against shame. 
we battle against shame with the promises of God. There are dozens of verses that could fit this context of battling against shame with the promises of God. Let me give you three just for your reference. First, Psalm 130 verse four. But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Hey, that's usefulness. We're not so broken that we're beyond use. With you there's forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. What about 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And what about Acts 13, 39? Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. The goal of Satan is to separate you from the Father. And so he gives you promises to draw you back. Shame whispers lies. Whispers lies that you are alone, that you are rejected, that you are useless, that you're too broken, too far gone, too messed up for grace. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ say the exact opposite. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've come to God through Jesus Christ, this is your identity, not what Satan is telling you. And the longer we stay listening to those, I'm worthless, I could never be used by God, like, you don't know what I did. We're listening to Satan. Jesus Christ tells us the exact opposite, that in him there is no condemnation. Okay, so what? Good stuff. How do I actually find this freedom? How do I actually move beyond shame and into freedom in Christ? What are some of the lies I need to be ready for? And what are the truths that I can debunk those lies with? Well, I could give you dozens. I won't because I'm probably already late, but let me give you two. First lie. Man, what I have done is bad. I mean, I know God is forgiving, but not this. You, You don't realize what you're saying. This is a deceptive one, especially for believers. And let me tell you why. Because it very appropriately makes much of the gravity and severity of sin. God is holy and righteous, and I should have known better. And I sinned against a holy, righteous God. Who am I to expect him to forgive that? And it sounds good, and it preaches nice, but it's completely inaccurate. It's neither humble nor true because what it says is that the cross of Christ is insufficient. His death wasn't strong enough for this one. You don't understand how bad it is. I want you to imagine for a second that you have a friend and you find out that that friend has a $2,500 debt to somebody and they have agreed to make a $25 a month payment so you're looking at eight years and four months plus interest. Like this is just, this is gonna go a while for a debt that's really not that big, all things considered. And so you, you decide, you know what? I'm gonna take care of it. And you pay off this $2,500 debt. And your friend is like, wow, thanks, that's awesome. Oh, eight years and three months back, I appreciate that. And then a little while later, you hear that they're still making payments to the lender. What? It's paid, it's done. Yeah, yeah, I just, what I did to get that debt, like it was really stupid, right? Like I never should have borrowed the money. So like, I'm just gonna, it's just better this way. No, it's paid off. Stop offending me by saying that my payment for your debt isn't enough. And yet we do that to Jesus Christ and his cross all the time. Because he pays it all, says it is finished. And we go, yeah, but not this one. 
I mean, these ones over here, yeah, but this one, and that's who I am, right? Like, I'm just, I'm broken. So that's the first lie you're going to need to fight is what I've done is too bad. Let me bring you to a second one that I think might even hit closer to home here. I know that God has forgiven me, but I just, I can't forgive myself. Like, do you realize what I did? Now again, this seems admirable because there might be people out there who are abusing the cross, right? Like just sinning and then running for grace. Not us. Mm -mm. I know what I did. I know how bad it was. I'm taking this seriously. God might be able to forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. Seems admirable. Problem is, it is not biblical righteousness at all. Righteousness is a legal declaration of our standing before God, and that standing is now right, hence righteousness, right before God. And for us to live otherwise is to abuse that understanding of righteousness. Here's the scary thing. I want you to imagine for a minute that there's a big chair right here. And then we realize that this chair is actually where God, the holy righteous judge, sits when he sits at his judge's desk and holds court, condemning and forgiving. And this is God's seat. And it is his place to cast judgment When I say that God might forgive me, but I can't forgive myself, in essence, what I am doing is I am moving God out of his chair, and I am sitting in the seat of God, a very, very dangerous place to be. Here's something else we need to note. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere are you told to forgive yourself. It's an interesting concept. It is not a biblical concept. Forgiveness is what happens when the offended party extends grace and removes culpability or guilt or blame from the offending party. When we sin, we're the offending party and God is the offended. We cannot forgive our sins. We cannot forgive ourselves. We need the offended one to do so. And he has. So when we sit in the seat of God and say, I will not remove this from myself, it's not for us. We're saying, in essence, that once again, the cross isn't sufficient for us. So when we use, at least when, tonight, when I use phrases like, I need to forgive myself, what I'm really saying is, what we need to do is, God has forgiven me, and now we need to move into a position of embracing and applying the grace and forgiveness of Jesus and live in that identity. That's now who we are. Why? Because forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a fact It is something Jesus does, not something I feel. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it is a fact. It's something Jesus does, not something I feel. We just read the verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, it's forgiven. Whether or not I feel forgiven on a given day does not change my identity. Remember that Satan is called the accuser. In fact, look at these terrifying verses from Revelation 12, 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accused them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. I want to point out three things really quickly. Number one, Satan is accusing you and me before God day and night. And then number two and number three, look how it is defeated. First, through the blood of the lamb, that sacrificed lamb of God that was sacrificed to take away our shame and through the word of their testimony. That is who they now are in Christ. So the applied blood and the new identity, not in the groveling because of their past, but the embracing of grace. Why? Because Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation 
before them who are in Christ Jesus. Satan is constantly coming before God, accusing me of things. And here's the crazy thing. He's not making stuff up. He's got lots of ammo. He's accusing me of real stuff. He's accusing you of stuff that's true of you. Look at how proud they are. Look at how judgmental they are. Look at how manipulative she is. Look at how lustful he is. Look at the way, like, you're, you want that, God? You want that as your kid? Here's the cool part. While all that is going on, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is answering every one of those accusations. Okay, what do you got? Yeah, that one doesn't count. I paid for that. What else? No, that one's taken care of. Don't count it. What else is going on? Can't count it. It's gone. Because in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation because we are forgiven. Whether or not we feel forgiven, the facts are there. When we believe the lies of shame, we refuse God's grace and have a works-based view of God, earning his love, trying to earn his love. This is contrary to the gospel message. We are sinners in need of a savior and he came and offered that Forgiveness is a fact, not a feeling. It is faith. Faith is living as though what God says is true, is true. So if God says there's now no condemnation, there's no condemnation. If God says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them, he's faithful and just to forgive them. So if, if the son were to set you free, as John 8 would tell us, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is your reality. My friends, God wants you free more than you want to be free. God wants you free more than I want to be free. And so since the beginning, he has taken steps and actions all the way back with sacrificing the first animal to redeem and to cover our shame all the way through to sacrificing the perfect lamb, his own son on the cross to bring us back and to remove our shame and to bring us into full sonship with him. In Christ, you are not your past. You are new. This sounds familiar. I think we just sang this. Oh yeah. You are who God says you are. You're a child of the king with full rights to the house. You're chosen, not forsaken. You, if God is for us, no one can stand against us. Who the son has set free is free indeed. I'm a child of the king. Yes, I am. Shame is a present identity of a past reality. So for Christians... Shame is an inaccurate present identity of a past and changed reality. I want you to look at these two phrases on the screen. Shame is guilt experienced. Freedom is grace experienced. Shame is guilt experienced. Freedom is grace experienced. Grace felt grace applied, grace embraced, grace lived in grace as our new identity. Not what we have done that we are ashamed of, but that which God has done. So you've sinned. We all have. You're guilty. We all are. Guilt was meant to drive us to repentance, not to shame. We were never meant to stay in guilt. Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.10, and he said this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. This was one of those passages that I never caught that last phrase until I was studying for this message. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Godly sorrow brings repentance, change of direction, go the other way, and leaves no regret. David, after some pretty awful sin, prayed to God in Psalm 51, 
Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, restore the joy of my salvation. I think every one of us here has had that moment where we go, God, please restore the joy of my salvation because the shame is killing me and we were never meant to bear it. So I wanna put one picture up on the screen here. This picture that's coming, I came across this when I was, uh, one of the first times I was speaking on the story of the prodigal son and I love it. Because if you could see it really clearly, which you probably can't, um, that guy's like his shirt is disgusting, it's ripped, it's, it's bad and yet there's the loving arms of Jesus, nail piercing everything, wrapping him up and welcoming him home. So to those of you who have been sinned against, this is waiting for you. To those of you who are currently living in a life of sin, this is waiting for you. And for those of us who have come to God through Christ, but yet we allow our past identity to factor into our current reality instead of applying and embracing the grace of God, this is waiting for us. And so to you, I say there is... There is no healing in hiding. There is no healing in hiding. So, to you who are hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. If you've come to the end of yourself and are thirsty for a drink from the well, Jesus is calling. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I'm begging you, stop hiding and come for healing. So, sometimes it's nice to have an actual, like, tangible, can I do something to help move this past the brain and into my heart? I want to offer you three possible ways to respond to this message. Number one, in the seat back in front of you, there are little slips of paper. They are approximately this big. If you're down here, there are a bunch of papers and pens here. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. If this is appropriate, write down on that paper the thing of which you are ashamed, the thing you should have known better about, the thing that keeps you distant from God. And then in a few minutes, once the music has started, we have three different paper shredders up here. It's not much, but I want you to imagine that you are bringing this thing that is identifying you, this thing that is crippling you, and bring it and send it through the shredder and watch it get taken away by grace. That's option number one. Option number two, we have prayer partners up here. Come talk to them. Come just unload. There is no healing and hiding. Come pray, come talk. Or three, stay where you are and meditate on the grace of God and your identity in him. These are just three possibilities, there's lots more. But we're gonna sing a couple of songs and during that time, if you wanna write something on the paper that you wanna just take to God and just, you own this, get it off my chest. It's not who I am anymore. I'm a child of the king, yes I am. Come drop it into the paper shredder as we sing, oh come to the altar. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.